Welcome to another episode of Left Coast Sports with John Schaefer and Left Coast Sports brought to you by the Multicultural Health Foundation, Reimagining Wellness. We're shifting the conversation from managing illness to inspiring wellness. Selection Sunday is almost here. We're less than four weeks away, and I thought today would be the perfect time to speak with a bracketologist as we take our first look at the potential March Madness bracket here in 2021. And I think you'll enjoy my conversation, if you're a college basketball fan, with Evan Miyakawa. Evan is a bracketologist that also runs a great college basketball analytics website at EVANMIYA.com. That's EVAN. MIYA.com, EvanMia.com. But before we get started with today's episode, please give us an auto download on your podcast platform so you get future episodes automatically. Left Coast Sports is on most podcast platforms right now, including Apple Podcasts, the free iHeartRadio app, YouTube, and Spotify. Also, while you're here and listening, please switch over to Twitter and give me a follow there at John Schaefer. That's J O N S C H A E F F E R. Again, at John Schaefer. Before there's the madness of March, there's our obsession over the bracket. Who's in the field? Who's out? Who's on the bubble? Who's on the outside looking in? On this week's episode, I'm joined by Evan Miyakawa as we take a look at the state of the bracket with less than one month until Selection Sunday. So Evan, tell me how you got into the analytical side and the metric side of college basketball. Great question. So First of all, I grew up a college basketball fan living in Indiana, and uh, when I was younger, I went to the Butler-Duke National Championship game in 2010, where Gordon Hayward almost hit that half-court shot to win, and so I was hooked on college basketball ever since. Fast forward now, I'm working on my PhD in statistics at Baylor, and so uh, while this is not at all a part of my dissertation work, sports analytics for me is like the, the perfect intersection, really, of my love for basketball and my statistics education, so... This kind of started as a side project for me just to engage in college basketball analytics. And so this season has been the first I've had my data public. And it's been a real fun to see the amount of engagement that uh, I've received uh, in the last couple months. So tell us about the system. And for those that haven't been to the site, EvanMaya.com, tell us about how the system works and how it compares to other analytical sites out there on the Internet. Yeah, so the short version is basically, like think of it kind of like Ken Palm, but for players as well as teams. So you've got team ratings uh, that are similar to other stuff that's out there, and you've also got that for players as well. So each team and player has an offensive and defensive rating, which measures their efficiency on each end of the court. So, you know, there, there's some stuff that makes my system a little bit different than others. For the team ratings part, uh, there's several components that I think are especially important. The first is that it's tempo-free, which is pretty common nowadays, where you're measuring stuff on a per-possession basis and you're not biased towards any teams that run the score up because they play faster. But another one that's really important for my side is that I filter out garbage time possessions. Hmm. So any possessions where the game is already analytically decided, I think from a coaching perspective, you know, you can learn a lot in those moments. But from a predictive standpoint, when we're trying to quantify how good a team or player is, I just don't find those to be as useful. So my data only relies on uh, parts of the game where the outcome was still uh, undecided. And then the final part as well is that I use uh, historical prior information to sort of influence those ratings, especially towards the beginning of the season, whether that be at a team or player level. So, you know, at the player level also, I'm trying to basically quantify every single player's impact on both ends of the court. And so I'm doing that through a couple different ways. The first is that I'm trying to combine both 
individual player efficiency stats along with how well the team actually performed with them on the court. And then the trick is to actually adjust for the strength of all of their players because if you take a simple stat like a plus-minus, for example, uh, there's a lot of unknown stuff that doesn't go into that, like who was the player playing with? Did he play against good opposition? Was it at the end of the game when it didn't matter? So my system adjusts for the strength of all other players on the court to give the best indication of how impactful a player is. So that's kind of a basic summary of what's going on. You know, it's all fascinating, especially for those that don't consume their days necessarily with the analytics side of college basketball. But I think a lot of people consume their time with bracketology, especially in February and March. So how do you take your numbers, the analytics at your site, and then convert them to what you also do at your site and try to project out a bracket? So there's a couple different ways you can go with bracketology. One is to sort of talk about who deserves the best seed, and the other is to talk about who do you actually think is going to get the seed based in the committee. So my bracketology is based on a machine learning algorithm that's taken several years of data from what the committee has done doing seeding and looking at the team sheet metrics that they have available for each of those years and then predicts the most likely seed based on what we see in the current season for each team if the committee were to select those teams today. So it relies a little bit on my personal team ratings, but more on the stuff that's readily available for those committee members, like other analytics that are out there, plus strength of record stuff and that kind of thing. You know, I want to ask you about some of these programs on the West Coast, beginning with San Diego State. I know your analytics are very high on the Aztecs. I think you got four of the top 45 or 50 players in the nation at San Diego State. What is it about San Diego State analytically that has allowed them to have this type of success this year? I've been higher on San Diego State than most for pretty much the whole year. They're ranked ninth in the nation right now at my site. And, you know, for comparison, they're in the 20s at Ken Palm and they're 18th in KPI, which is more of a resume-based metrics, and only 52nd in strength of record. But for me, the reason why they're higher in mine is because I'm filtering out uh, garbage time. There have been a lot of games where San Diego State has done a really good job of putting an opponent away early, and then once the game is already decided, they haven't really run up the score. And to me, that doesn't really matter. They're not trying to pad the score once it's already out of hand. So they've had games where they've won by 20 or 30, but the game's decided with, you know, 12 minutes to go or something like that. And that's where the score ends up being at the end. But for me, it looks even more impressive when you filter out those garbage time possessions. At the player level is also, they've got four of the top six players in the Mountain West in my uh, Bayesian performance rating, which is the name of my player metric. So to me, they've got a lot of depth there and they're not overly reliant on one guy. And to me, that's, that's a reason why they're, they're ranked so high. When you talk about seeding scenarios, and again, I know that the analytics don't necessarily equate to seeding, but what would be a best case for a San Diego State? Let's say they win their remaining regular season games. Won't be easy. They have Boise State for a pair of games. They'd have the Mountain West Tournament. But if they could somehow run a table, what type of seeding could a San Diego State potentially be looking at? So right now at my site, they're uh, on a six seed, but I think that's a little high compared to most. If you look at bracket matrix, they're around nine. I think there's about a you know five to ten percent chance that they could get at the five seed or better if they win out. So I think in that five to six range would be best case scenario probably. You know they've got four games left plus the the conference tournament. So I think if they win out, that's that's where they're looking. 
What's your overall assessment of the Mountain West Conference, a league that has San Diego State, but then other teams have had very good years. The Colorado State's uh, CSU won at San Diego State this year, although overcame a 26-point deficit. Then Boise has had a very nice year. Utah State as well. So will this ultimately be a multi-bid league, and how many teams could get in from the Mountain West? I definitely think this will be a multi-bid league. It's a really, really fun year for the Mountain West. You've got, along with San Diego State, you've got Boise State, Utah State, Colorado State, all in the mix there for bids. You know, at at uh, websites like Team Rankings, Boise State's around a 50% chance uh, to get in, similar on Torvik. Uh, but Torvik has a, a higher chance of all those teams getting in at over 70%. So to me, I think the team that has the highest chance is probably Boise State, but Utah State's close as well. Both those teams are in the top 40 in my team rating, so I think they have the firepower to put some good results in down the stretch. I would be shocked if only San Diego State got in. I think we could see two or three teams get in for sure, maybe even four, depending on how things play out. I want to ask you about the Pac-12, where right now your analytics at EvanMIYA.com have Colorado as the best team in the league. What is separating the Buffaloes right now from the USC Trojans? So similar story to San Diego State. I've also been high on Colorado all season. They're sixth right now at my site, despite having six losses. They've got the fifth best ranked offense on my site. I do think that rating might be a little bit too uh, optimistic, as, um, but I think they're at least as good as USC, in my opinion, which is 22nd at my site. It's a similar story to San Diego State in the sense that they've played a lot of opponents uh, well early on and put the game away. They've got uh, 10 games versus top 100 opponents in my site, and they're 6-4. and four. Their best win is over UFC, USC. That's the only time they've played. They've won that game by 10. They've beat Stanford twice convincingly, and all of their losses have been really close. USC also, I think, is a very good team, but they only have six top 100 games. So for me, I think that Colorado is a team that's a little bit underrated right now, and I think certainly their resume isn't quite as good as what they reflect as a team. They've got a lot more depth, in my opinion, than USC does. Evan, I'm wondering from an analytics perspective, is USC's freshman phenom Evan Mobley the best player in the Pac-12 right now? And how good of a player is he nationwide? Yeah, I don't even think that's a question. Evan Mobley, to me, is the best player without a doubt in the Pac-12 and I think is in the discussion to be a first-team All-American for good reason. Hmm. I mean, you just look at his individual stats, almost 17 points a game, nine boards, three blocks, 59% from the field, and shooting 70% from the line, which isn't always a given for someone of his stature. He is the highest-rated player in the conference at my site. He's also got the highest player efficiency rating. And to me, what sticks out is he has the highest defensive rating in the conference by a lot. So that's not something that's really quantified as much uh, in the individual stats. Certainly, you can see that a little bit in his three blocks a game. But USC is playing a lot better with him defensively when he's on the floor versus not. So to me, those are all reasons that he's a, a front-runner for Pac-12 Player of the Year, if not to get a first-team All-American appearance. Yeah, he's had an unbelievable year. Uh, in your opinion, and I know we still have weeks to go, but when you look at the Pac-12, how many of these teams are firmly in the field, and how many of these teams still have work to do? So for me, I think USC is a lock, no question. I also think Colorado is firmly in. Uh, the other two teams to me are Oregon and Stanford, who I think are sitting on either the uh, UCLA as well, my bad. Mm -hmm. So I think Oregon and UCLA are kind of around that 10 seed mark right now. So I think they're in currently and Stanford's going to need some good results. Uh, they are, you know, I think in those probably the first eight teams that are sitting right outside of the field at this point in time. So between those five teams, I think we'll probably see four of them get in. When you look at the 
you know, the years that Gonzaga have had, the year that Baylor has had, first of all, how much separation is there between those two teams? And then what is the separation between Gonzaga and Baylor and everyone else? So Gonzaga and Baylor have been number one and number two pretty much the entire year in my system. And it's flopped back a little back and forth. But right now, Gonzaga has probably the largest separation between them and Baylor they've had all season, which still is not very much. The gap between Baylor and third place Michigan is more than number three Michigan and 15 Texas in my system. So Hmm. right now they are so much farther ahead than the rest of the field. In fact, my database goes back about five years and Gonzaga right now has the highest team rating that I've ever seen in those five years. And Baylor is only behind one other team along with Gonzaga. That's the Villanova team that won the championship in 2018. So both rosters are really stacked. All their players rate really highly on my player rating side. So to me, they're, they're pretty neck and neck. I'd give the edge to Gonzaga at this point, but uh, it's going to be really tough for either of them to lose uh, before the national championship. Oh, interesting. So your analytics basically would lead you to believe that it would be a surprise. Would it be even bigger than a surprise if those two teams were both in the Final Four? I'd say it's it's pretty likely that we'll have at least one of those teams. Certainly the tournament, Mm -hmm. uh, you only have one off game and you could lose. So I'm not saying it's a guarantee that both get there, but I've started to run some preliminary simulations of the tournament based on my team ratings. And pretty much every single time, it's either Baylor or Gonzaga getting to the championship and often winning it. So I'm not saying it's a lock by any means, but I think there's been a lot of discussion this whole season about whether you would take Baylor and Gonzaga versus the field. And up to this point in time, I've said, well, the field, let's just do the math. But I think it's starting to become a little bit more of a discussion about uh, you know, whether any of these other teams have a realistic chance of upending one or both of these teams. Would you have a dark horse if it wasn't one of those two teams? And like you said, the difference between two and three is a sizable difference right now. So a dark horse even could be a Michigan or a team ranked right now inside the top ten. But is there someone that you've been tracking analytically that you think could, you know, would have more than a puncher's chance potentially against a Gonzaga or a Baylor? Yeah, it's hard to really conclude on any one team. I think Michigan probably has the best chance overall. To me, they're they've got the number one defense in the nation on my site and their roster is just really loaded, so I would really be uh, leading towards them, I think, if I had to put my, my money on someone. But another team to me that sticks out is a team like Alabama, who has a really, really high upside. Obviously, they play really fast, and they're really well-rounded on both sides of the ball. And if they get hot, I mean, it might be pretty difficult to keep up with them. So they're a team to me that may not be the most reliable compared to a team like Michigan, but certainly has the upside to potentially get a win over a Gonzaga or a Baylor. Do you think, Evan, that Indianapolis ultimately will be a factor? And what I mean by that is schools in the state or schools like uh, that are in the Big Ten Conference that play games typically in that footprint, will there be any advantage based on geography this year? I don't really think so. I think the fact that teams are going to have to travel early and quarantine and they're all going to be more or less in the same uh, you know, strict regiment, I think it's going to probably equal out, especially as we get further into the tournament. This is going to be unlike anything either any of these players have done, even compared to maybe some of the early season tournaments that they did. So I don't think it's going to be a huge differentiating factor. You know, we mentioned Gonzaga and Baylor. I did want to mention BYU. They've got an excellent resume. Um, They've had some very good road wins, including one at Viejas against San Diego State. Is BYU right now firmly in the field, or do they still have work to do? I definitely think they are right now. I have them at a six seed at Bracket Matrix. They're at an eight the thing is, they're 19th in KPI, and they're 5-5 five and five in quad one plus two opportunities. So they've put together 
uh, quite a nice chance. I, I think it's not exactly a lock, but I would say there's at least an 85% chance they get in, and that's at the very conservative end. Uh, the trouble for me is they're only 55th at my site in terms of team rating, so they don't stack up quite as highly as some of the other teams in their seed range, but they put a really nice resume together, uh, and so I think I think they're pretty in a pretty good shape there. Evan, what do you make of the conference tournament conundrum? And what I mean by that is we're hearing some rumblings that maybe some of these schools won't play in their conference tournament because they are locks to be in the field. Maybe it's a Gonzaga, maybe it's a BYU, but if you, if you don't have a Gonzaga, for example, in the WCC, and someone else wins the automatic qualifier, well, that's really messing with the process and taking away opportunities from an at-large perspective. Do you believe that this will be sorted out, or is this a huge question mark looming over March Madness? So if we were to talk worst-case scenario for these bubble teams where all the teams that are firmly in the field opt out of the tournaments, again, this is worst-case scenario, then you would see eight or nine spots of those at-large teams kind of evaporate out of thin air. So you'd Mm -hmm. have teams like some of these lower-end Mountain West teams we've been talking about, who are all right now in the conversation to get in and on the right side of the bubble might actually not get in. You know, maybe even teams like Oklahoma State or Minnesota, for example, could be in a little bit of trouble there. So to me, this is something that has to get resolved. And I kind of feel like all the conferences have to either go one way or the other. I think if one conference like the WCC announces that it's okay for Gonzaga to opt out and then to give their auto bid to a team that's not in the field, I feel like other conferences might also start doing that. And so I don't know if it'll settle in the middle, but it could be kind of unfair to some teams uh, if it if it doesn't, if all the conferences don't do the same thing. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And let's assume we don't have that and we have a normal field. Is there anyone in your system right now that's on the outside looking in, but you like them when you look at the analytics and you think if they were to make a run here late in the season, they could not only get into the field of 68, but potentially win a game or two? There's some teams in the Atlantic 10 that are really interesting to me. Uh, the team that's that I've been pretty high on the whole season but had a little bit of trouble since coming off of their COVID pause is St. Louis. I had St. Louis in the top 10 earlier in the season because of how strong their team has been and how um, uh, how well-rounded they are. The number of games they've had to play this year is way less than other teams, but I think if they can round into form and recover some of that early season form, I think there could be a sleeper to, to potentially make the Sweet 16. Evan, we really appreciate the time. It is an excellent site for those that have not checked it out. Again, E-V-A-N-M-I-Y-A.com. A great resource, especially this time of year. And we thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks again to Evan Miyakawa for joining us today on Left Coast Sports. And make sure to check out his website every single day between now and Selection Sunday. He's got a complete analytical breakdown, a complete bracketology breakdown as well at evanmiya.com. That's evanmia.com. And again, if you haven't already, please subscribe and auto-download future episodes on whichever podcast platform you're listening to this podcast on. And please give me a follow on Twitter as well, at John Schaefer, that's J-O-N-S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R. Also, coming this March to your view, Advance to Indianapolis, a four-week college basketball tournament show that follows local teams and players on their journey to a national championship. Each week, Advance to Indy reviews the previous weekend's rounds and looks ahead to the upcoming weekend. Each show airs four times per week, with 16 total show airings throughout the tournament. Advance to Indianapolis includes interviews and expert analysis, along with local stories on the teams, players, and fans that make the madness of March so much fun. And for more information, visit 
visit yourview.com. That's Y-U-R-V-I-E-W.com. Next week on Left Coast Sports, we'll be inside three weeks until Selection Sunday. What's the state of conference tournaments in this unprecedented year? Thanks for listening. We'll catch up next week right here on Left Coast Sports with John Schaefer.